This morning's scripture readings will be from Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, John chapter 1, verses 29 through 36, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The animals you have chosen must be your old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they are to eat the lambs. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from the heavens as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of your announcement sheet, you'll find um, not only an order of worship, but there's an outline that you can use as we go through the message this morning as we think about uh, the Messiah and how he comes to us as the Lamb of God. Uh, before we pray, though, and get into the lesson, just a reminder for those that might have come in a little bit later this morning that today is the deadline for the, for the purpose cards, financial purpose cards, to, to come in. And as you know, the way that our, our budget is put together, those cards come in based on, on what it is that you're going to be committing to the church in 2018 all of those numbers are combined to come up with a lump sum that has been committed by our church family. And out of that lump sum comes our ministry funding, uh, our missionaries, all of those kinds of things come out of that. So it's very important that everyone, regardless of the amount, participate in one way or another with letting us know what they're going to purpose this next year in order to bless people around the world. And remember our mission statement is to love God, it's to love people, and it's to change the world. And we want you to be praying about that and thinking about that and praying some more about that as you think about your financial giving this next year. Now, we're going to jump into the text, but before we do that, let's do as we always do, and that's bow our heads, join our hearts, and ask God to, to bless us through prayer. Father, we're grateful for this day because it's a day that was not promised to, to any of us. And yet you have given it to us as a blessing, and we are grateful for it, and we pray that in all of the things that we do this morning and through the rest of this day, that we will bring glory to you and honor you, Father, and live in your grace and bless your name, Father, by the way that we, we worship and the way that we serve and the way that we emulate and imitate as disciples your Son, Jesus of Nazareth. We are grateful for the text that we're going to look at this morning. We pray, Father, as we always do, in the name of Jesus, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that we will be transformed. And this we pray in the name of our Messiah and all the church said, 
We're looking, at, uh, we're looking at the Messiah, and we've looked at his birth, we've looked at the temptations. This morning we're going to look at this, this designation, this, uh, this, th- this uh, uh, phrase that he has called throughout Scripture, the Lamb of God. And I want to begin by calling attention to just how curious a thing introductions are. You know, introductions are a very curious thing, because uh, if you go to a sporting event, like AT, AT&T Center for a Spurs game, that introduction, the lights go down, the music revs up, the, the video starts. It's all an effort to get everybody focused, to get everybody hyped up, and also to intimidate the opposition. Think about how this happens in a boxing match. One of my favorite introductions was Apollo Creed in the first Rocky movie. And you remember that the way he was introduced, he was called the King of Sting, the Master of Disaster, and the Count of Montefisto. And that was to imitate Rocky, which he kind of did in those early rounds, right? Well, he was a fictitious boxer. How about a real one? Iron Mike Tyson. Remember the way the nicknames that they gave him as they were introducing him? And they would talk about this even at the weigh-ins, at the intimidation, the introduction of the fighters and their weights. The intimidation was to happen then, and he was called the baddest man on the planet. He was called Iron Mike. He was called Kid Dynamite. And all of those introductions were to intimidate and they were to call attention to that fighter. Well, introductions sort of work that way. In general, though, they're to to call attention to the person. When you give an introduction to somebody, you're saying, watch that person. Listen to what he says. Watch what he does. Now, you may not remember this, but Jesus himself had two introductions. The first one was from God at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. The voice, the bot call, the daughter voice, the echo, the, the voice of God came from heaven and said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, that this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. The second introduction comes from this, this individual that we call John the Baptist. That's not what he called himself, but he was the one that came baptizing, and that was the name that we give him. And John is out in the middle of the wilderness, he's, he's everywhere, and he's captivating the hearts of the people. And he's, he's preaching a message of repentance, and he's baptizing people with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is really upsetting the hierarchy, the religious hierarchy of, of Israel. Because they go, okay, we get the whole baptism for forgiveness of sin, but that's for other people, that's not for Israel. And so they send priests and Levites out to ask him, you know, Who in the world gave you authority to baptize like this? And so here come the priests and the Levites one day, and they confront John, and they ask him a couple of questions. They ask him, are you the Messiah? He says, no. They go, well then, are you Elijah? And they're thinking Malachi chapter 4. And he says, no, when in fact he really was, just did not understand it at that time. And then the third question was, are you the prophet? Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, and, and a prophet maybe like Moses coming again. And to that question, he says, he says no. Now John might be a little bit vague about himself, but he's not vague about the Christ. And, and one day he's out, and he sees Jesus walking along, and he says, behold the Lamb of God. Now that word in our translation, the Greek word is ido, which means behold. It's not look. A lot of our, It's not a bad translation, but it doesn't carry sort of the weight of behold. I mean, we might say, you know, oh, look, a squirrel. 
But we would never say, behold, a squirrel. We would never say something like that, right? When you behold something, it's, you're beholding beauty. You're beholding something special. And John sees the Christ. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one I meant when I said there's one coming after me who is greater than me because in actuality he was before me. It's him. He's the Lamb of God. And then the next day, John is with a couple of his disciples, sees Jesus again, and he points to Jesus and he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Lamb of God. Lamb of God. Not exactly the king of sting when you think about it. What does it mean? Well, for us to understand it, we want to pull out of the text three things. We want to look at the past, the moment of fulfillment, and then the future. So we begin with the past. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation of the heavens and the earth. We have the creation of the pristine world that God looks down upon, and He says in in, in, in Hebrew, tov, it's good. It's exactly the representation in my mind. Right there in front of me, it's exactly the way it's supposed to be. And no one, none of us here this morning, can comprehend the world as it was created in the beginning. The reality of the world in the beginning was not a reality of death and suffering and sorrow and sickness. I mean, none of that stuff existed. And then sin enters into the world, creation falls, and there's this oracle in the middle of Genesis chapter 3 where God says, you know, there's going to be thorns and thistles. And sometimes those thorns and thistles are inside of us. And relationships become a struggle between men and women and people in general, and sometimes those relationships are damaged. He says that now the work that you're going to do is going to be work that involves sweat, which means toil. It's going to be hard because of the fall of creation. It also means that because sin has entered into the world, death is going to enter into the life of every human being. Now when they're hearing this, they have never, Adam and Eve, when they hear this, they've never seen anything die. I mean, imagine that. A world in which nobody said farewell. A world in which no one said goodbye. And death is this enemy, and death is this intruder that we cannot defeat on our own. It comes to every human being because we all sin. Now we speed forward from the beginning of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus, to the time of Moses. And you know the story of Moses. Moses has been in the desert of Midian for a lot of years, for 40 years. God calls him to go back to Egypt. And over and over again, Moses and Aaron are calling for Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, the king of Egypt. He calls for Pharaoh to let the people of God to go. And Pharaoh refuses, and God sends a plague. And that's the way it goes. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says no, and so he sends a plague. Then it happens again. Let my people go. The answer is no, and here comes the plague. And then it happens again, and again, until nine times it takes place. And then on the tenth time, it's different. On the tenth time, there is going to be a unique and comprehensive judgment of Egypt that is all also going to include Israel. 
It's going to be the death of the firstborn. And the reason, it, this is unique and comprehensive for, for, for Egypt and all of the people. And the reason that Israel is also a part of this is because, as, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there is no one who hasn't sinned. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And because that's true, Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin are what, church? Death. And so, it's going to be the death of the firstborn. The, the death of, of the firstborn all over Egypt, but at the hands of this mysterious figure called the destroyer. Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. And Israel is not on her own going to be able to meet under her own power, her own strength, her own merit, this destroyer. The only thing that can stand between Israel and the destroyer is a lamb. A lamb. And that event becomes known to them and to us as the Passover. And, and Moses says, the animals that you choose, talking about the lambs, must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. You take them until the 14th day of, mo- of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And then you take some of the blood, you put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And then you drop down to verse 23. And when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and the sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the what? the destroyer, to enter your house and strike you down. The only reason that death does not come to the firstborn on whom all the hope of the family rests is that it all fell on the lamb. And later, as Israel has been freed up from Egypt in the Exodus, they're on their way to the promised land, This lamb comes up again as a solution to this ongoing problem of sin and death. And we read in Leviticus chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. If someone brings a lamb as their what? Their sin offering. They are to bring a female without defect. They are to lay their hands on its head and slaughter it for a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. You were supposed to identify. It just wasn't, you know, just handing this lamb off and walking away. You were to put your hands on it. As, as the lamb was killed. And in no way could you not identify yourself in that moment with the death of that lamb. That was for you. Your hands are on it. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. They shall remove all the fat, just as the fat is removed from the lamb of the fellowship offering. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the food offerings presented to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they have committed and they will be forgiven. And so for a lot of centuries... Lambs were sacrificed because the sins needed to be forgiven the people. And pretty much everyone saw that it was not a permanent way for the sin to be dealt with. I mean, reflecting back on all of that Jewish history, the writer of Hebrews chapter 10 says, those sacrifices were an annual reminder of sins. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And they did it year after year after year after year. Until one day, 
a crazy-looking prophet by the name of John that everybody called the Baptist shows up, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Which brings us to the fulfillment of it. The incarnation that we looked at about a month ago means that, that Jesus came humbly. That he came humbly. He didn't come in, in, in a way that revealed the greatness of his glory in heaven. He came as a human being, born into a poor family, the son of a carpenter. No room in the end, a manger, a food trough for animals. That was his first crib. That was his bed. To say that he's the Lamb of God means that he did, not, he did not come just humbly, but he came sacrificially. He came to take away the sins of the world. And this is a fact that even after all of the decades that Jesus has returned to heaven and John, his best friend, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, even in his 90s, he is so mesmerized by this truth that even at the end of his life, you can just hear it in the words, that the excitement and the surprise and the encouragement and, and, and the humility when he says, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. 1 John 3, 5. And Jesus lived his life like no other in order to do what no other could accomplish, and that was the forgiveness of sins for human beings once and for all. And so on the night of his, his betrayal, he's sitting down to the Passover dinner with his disciples, and it's the strangest Passover meal these guys have ever experienced or participated in. And the reason for that is that there's something that's missing. It's like Christmas without Christmas music. It's like Thanksgiving without pecan pie. How weird is that? <laughs> on the table, there's bread and there's wine. But where is the Passover lamb? There's no lamb on that table. Why? Because the lamb is at the table. And in Matthew 26, in that moment, Jesus takes a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gives it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the, say it with me, forgiveness of sins. And later that night, he's arrested, and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, taken before Pilate. He's mocked. He's lied about. He's beaten to a pulp. I mean, they just beat him right into the ground. And then they crucify him. And as he's there, crucified and hanging in the air, he experiences being forsaken by, by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, if, if, if I'm walking down the street and somebody, I've never seen this cat before, and he says, I never want to see you again, big deal, right? Nice knowing you. But if a member of our church family, if, if John Skipworth or Daryl Hutchinson or, 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 or Shane West or, or Wayne Rushing walked up to me and said, you know what, I never want to see you ever again. Now that's going to mean something. But if my wife ever came up to me after 35 years of marriage 
all of those trips around the block with each other. And she said, I never want to see you ever again. It's just devastating. Devastating. What is the answer to the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to that question is because of me and because of you. Forsakenness because of us. He took that rejection so that in the end we wouldn't have to. But let's take it one step further. I mean, why in the world would he go through all of that? I'm always reminded of this passage out of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, For the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross. He scorned its shame. Now, let's think about that for a moment. For the joy set before him, he came to earth incarnationally to become the Lamb of God in the flesh. For this joy that is set before him endures this cross for us. Why? I mean, what joy is there that he doesn't have in the perfect harmony and fellowship in heaven with God the Father, God the Spirit? I mean, it's a perfect place, perfect harmony, perfect relationship, perfect celebration of each other. It is the perfect place. What joy is missing? And the answer is us. We're that joy. The only thing that he's lacking, the joy is us. We're the joy set before him. That in love he endures the cross. Which means that his love made him a lamb. You know, people really have a hard time with this substitutionary atonement thing. I mean, they, you know, we just want God to forgive. Why can't God just forgive us? The problem is, is that all of us, as much as we would want God to just forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive, and we are the recipients of that forgiveness, we also want there to be justice. I mean, we can't imagine a universe, a cosmos, in which there is no justice, that all of the wrongs someday are going to be made right. Nobody wants to live in that kind of a universe. On the flip side of that coin, there are others that say, well, who says I'm a sinner? Who says I'm a sinner? That may be according to your rules and, 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 and your moral ethic code, but not mine. And I would say, well, really? I remember a conversation I had with one of the smartest men I've ever known, a fellow by the name of Kim Self. And we were talking about the beginning portion of Romans, and he said, here's the deal. Forget there's a, a moral code that God has. We're guilty of not even living up to our own. I mean, imagine turning your life into a reality show. 24 hours, not just your best hours, but for 24 hours, seven days a week, there's going to be a video camera that's going to be broadcasting to everybody everything you say, everything you do, and everything that you think. And not only that, it's going to be recorded so that those that miss it can watch it later. And then ask yourself, do you live up 100% emotionally and physically and ethically and intellectually to your own moral standards? And the answer is no. I mean, for, you don't even live up to your own standards. And that's why God demonstrates, Romans chapter 5, His own love for us in this. That while we're still sinners, Christ, the Lamb of God, 
died for us. And because of the forgiveness of sin, there's a future. Someday in the future, there's going to be a second coming in heaven and hell. It's going to be stretched out in front of all of us in all of eternity. And the images of hell that we read about in the Bible are a little bit frightening. I mean, there's that worm that never dies. It's like the Terminator worm. You just It's after you. And fire that cannot be put out. It's unquenchable. And there's darkness and there's friendlessness and there's misery because people are gnashing their teeth. But the most frightening thing about hell is none of that. The most frightening thing about hell is that hell is the place where there is no hope that God will ever come and get you. Heaven on the other side, lots of images. Feasts. I mean, who does not like a feast? Feasts are great. You know, turkeys, as far as you can see. Friendship. Who doesn't like to eat with friends? But the greatest will be the the opportunity to do what John the Baptist in heaven with God, with Christ, we will be able to do for all of eternity what John the Baptist tells us to do. And as behold the Lamb of God. That's what makes heaven, heaven. We're going to sing a song. Brandon's going to lead us in a song. And, you know, So, so many times we get really close to the edge, don't we? We get close to the edge. We, we, we see the kingdom of God from far off and, and we wonder, we just wonder, is it, is, it, is it good enough to be true? It is. It doesn't mean that you're going to live this, this pain-free life, a life without suffering. It, what it does mean, though, is that you go through this life with God's Spirit in you, helping you to become the human being you were always created to be. There is, in knowing God and God knowing you and Christ in you and Spirit and the Word and all, and the fellowship of brothers and sisters, there's an inexpressible joy. There's a peace that passes understanding. Because the thing that causes our guilt, the thing that is the, the, the blot on our soul is washed away in the blood of the Lamb. There's power in the blood. And if there are ways that we can help you understand how that can happen for you today, we want you, we're going to have shepherds down here at the front ready to receive new lambs. If that describes you in some way that you want to find for yourself that experience of what it means to, to become a child of God because Jesus was the Lamb of God, then come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Your